BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the potential loss of Roe, which enshrined the right to an abortion and expanded the court's understanding of privacy, has wide-reaching implications. And this hour, we take a closer look at online privacy, from search queries for the morning after pill to tracking the location data of people visiting reproductive health clinics. We'll hear from legal and online data experts on what worries them about digital surveillance in a post-Roe America and what's already happening to our private data. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In the wake of the leaked Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, digital privacy experts and advocates are warning that online searches and health data are more sensitive than ever, and advising people to rethink the web browsers or even period tracking apps that they're using. This hour, we look at how these pieces of data could be used against people seeking abortions, and in some cases already have been with legal and online data experts. And joining me now is Nicole Ozer, the Technology and Civil Liberties Director of the ACLU of California. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me, though. I certainly wish you were under different circumstances. Yes, really appreciate having you on. And before we dive into the circumstances, can you just clarify for us what you mean or what we mean when we talk about online data? What kind of data we're talking about here? You know, what technology companies call data is just really sensitive information about us. It's who we are where we go, what we do, who we know. It's our health concerns, our habits, and really sort of everything in between. And the more we do online, the more of these really sensitive digital footprints we leave behind. Much of it is collected in the background and often without us even realizing it, like our location information. You know, we think we're just using our phones, but You know, our mobile phones really act as always on surveillance devices. They're transmitting information that identifies us, who we are and where we go. You know, anyone that's ever opened a smartphone app with location services on and sees their blue dot, we really have a sense of just how precise that location information can be and what companies are collecting about who we are and where we go. When we use a search engine, 
We're leaving a detailed trail of information behind about who we are, what we're searching for, what web pages we're reading. And when we're using apps, you know, Siri isn't our personal assistant. Alexa is not our buddy. You know, these, these devices work for Apple and work for Amazon. They're collecting information about who we are and what we're asking about. And, you know, the period tracker, you know, many of us, many of these period trackers are marketed as quote unquote free, but we're paying a really high price for a lot of these healthcare apps in that they're collecting really detailed personal information about who we are, um, sharing it and selling it widely. You know, the tech companies have become the richest companies in the world, being able to collect so much of our personal information and really sell it to the highest bidder. And now the government can reach in and get really detailed information about so much of our personal lives. You know, when it comes to reproductive rights, this digital privacy trail really matters. And you know, we've known about these threats and talked about these threats for a very long time. I've been at the ACLU since 2004, and I know that this is something that we've always discussed um, and always been worried about. And you know, the reality is that the technology companies, um, you know, it's been good for their bottom line to keep us confused about how much information is collected and how vulnerable it really is. And they've used their massive resources to really try to stop strong new privacy laws that would better protect us. Um, and unfortunately, now we're in a really dire situation where there is so much personal information out there that really can be used um, to harm women and families going forward. So let's talk a little bit about that information that can indicate that someone is pregnant or potentially seeking an abortion from the obvious to the less obvious that interacts with this incredibly sophisticated data tracking apparatus that you just outlined for us. We've, we've already seen this digital surveillance apparatus weaponized against women seeking reproductive health care. We've seen online searches for abortion medication. We've seen text messages about getting an abortion. Both of those have already been used to convict women. Um, way back in 2015, we saw anti-abortion activists using location information to target anti-abortion ads at, at women visiting reproductive health clinics. We know that this month that location information brokers were selling lists of people visiting Planned Parenthood and other family planning centers with information on when they were at those centers, where they had come from, and where they went afterwards all being sold for less than a couple hundred dollars. So, you know, if we see Roe v. Wade overturned, you know, the people seeking abortions in the 23 states set to ban it will have to contend with a reality that this digital surveillance infrastructure could absolutely be used against them. Yeah, so you're describing a few things here. You're describing someone entering something into a search engine, say, the word abortion or seeking abortion medication like misoprostol or something like that being used, being tracked, used, and then used as evidence against them for a charge? Absolutely. Yeah, we've already seen that happen. 
Um, and you know, it's really scary to think about, but I think we will definitely see the same kind of dangerous surveillance playbook that we've already seen law enforcement try to use against immigrant communities and racial just, justice protesters and, and others in recent years. These kinds of dragnet fishing types of government demands, like what they call geofence warrants, that's where um, the government tries to find out everyone who's been at a particular location. Um, I can see government demands for the list of people of everyone who's been at a reproductive health clinic. We also see um, dragnet demands like keyword warrants. This is where the government tries to find out everyone who searched for a particular thing on a search engine, like um, an abortion pill or other types of abortion or reproductive rights um, and reproductive health drugs. Um, so I think that we will see more of that. There's been an exponential increase in the use of geofence warrants and keyword warrants in recent years. As I mentioned, we've seen them used against immigrant communities and certainly against um, racial justice protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters in recent years. So I think we will see, we will unfortunately see a lot of that. This information is just so vulnerable. Um, and I think that we'll also see law enforcement in other states and probably also, you know, private individuals trying to act as bounty hunters, buying personal information from data brokers, sort of getting around um, any type of legal oversight and legal process. We know that the government has already been doing this to try to surveil and track Muslim Americans in recent years. They've been buying location information from data brokers that originated with Muslim prayer apps. And data brokers have massive amounts of information about women, um, you know, our movements, our healthcare from many sources, including social media and mobile devices and apps. So I think that we're going to see a lot of really um, grave threats in terms of the digital privacy space. I think that one other thing that really concerns me is, you know, what the surveillance infrastructure that now exists in communities and states across the country talking about the video cameras, the drones, the license plate readers, the face recognition, all of this surveillance technology that Trump already tried to put into action to try to attack immigrant communities. I think we will see it now turned on women to try to monitor, identify, and track people trying to access reproductive health care. And I would just say for us here in the Bay Area, you know, if we care about reproductive rights, and want us to be a place where people can feel safe getting support, then we need to be doing everything we can right now to bolster privacy protections and not build more surveillance. And right now there are proposals in place. Um, there, being, there are proposals being put forward in San Francisco uh, to, to greatly expand surveillance infrastructure and allow law enforcement to get access to thousands of live feed video cameras across the city and also private cameras. Um, we, and that's something that you know really will increase surveillance and potentially um, really increase risk to people who are coming here uh, to try to access healthcare. So I would tell everybody, urge people to contact the Board of Supervisors who will be voting on this next month and, and really urge them not to expand any surveillance infrastructure. We also have bills in the state legislature as well, um, a bill SB 1038 
um, which would maintain current California law and make sure that law enforcement can't use biometric surveillance on body cameras to identify and track people. Um, that bill is going to be going up for a Senate floor vote very soon. That's SB 1038. And really just so important right now to be doing all we can in our communities in our state uh, to protect privacy, create more protections, and not create more surveillance infrastructure that could be used to really target um, and undermine uh, the safety and health of women. So you were talking about what has already been happening to people who are seeking abortion services, maybe on behalf of themselves or friends in terms of what's accessible and available. But I think what you're also getting at here is just what is available and possible down the line that people are worried about when it comes to digital surveillance. Yes, absolutely. You know, both these are these are risks that you know, there are some things we know have already been happening. These are these are threats that we've been warning about for many years, but there's these are also no longer hypotheticals. We are seeing this infrastructure um, already used against women. We've seen it used against immigrant communities. We've seen it used against racial justice um, and, and Black communities. Um, so we know that it's going to be turned against, um, you know, women going forward. And, and it's just so important to do all that we can uh, to, to strengthen current privacy protections, both online and also make sure we are not building and maintaining more surveillance infrastructure in the physical world as well um, that tracks and identifies people. Well, we'll dig into all of those things that you're talking about, Nicole Ozer. Nicole Ozer is Technology and Civil Liberties Director of the ACLU of Northern California. We'll dig into it with Nicole and with you, our listeners. What are your questions about data and privacy post-Roe? What actions are you taking to protect your personal data? Have you felt digitally watched or tracked with regard to your health data or searches online? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can call us, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break about the implications of a post-Roe America for personal data and community surveillance. After the break, stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. 
Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. The Taliban regained power in Afghanistan in August when the U.S. military withdrew. They assured the world that they wouldn't take away any rights and privileges from women and girls. But girls no longer go to some schools. Most women who worked outside the home have stopped. Have you been paying attention? Do you think enough is being done for women and girls in the Taliban's Afghanistan? What can be done and who can do it? You can share your thoughts before the show by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300. Today we're talking about digital privacy in post-Roe America in the wake of the leak of the draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. Nicole Ozer is with us, the Technology and Civil Liberties Director of the ACLU of Northern California. And joining us now is Paramita Shah. Hamita Shah is the executive director of Just Futures Law, a woman of color-led organization that provides legal support for people facing deportation and mass criminalization. Welcome to Forum, Paramita. Thank you for having me. We've been hearing Nicole talk a little bit about how digital digital surveillance has already been used, particularly on communities and immigrant communities and so on. And I know that you and your organization have documented this. What can you tell us? What can you expand on that Nicole was discussing in terms of what technologies are already being used and how? Sure. I mean, I think as Nicole discussed, we are beginning to see the evidence of a massive militarized and very profitable technological surveillance machine that is being deployed against black and brown communities um, and threatens, frankly, our well-being, democracy, and our self-determination. And where we've seen that, at least in our work, is with the Department of Homeland Security, which is a very young but very powerful agency that has billions of dollars um, at its disposal. And you know, over the last uh, several years, and, and just to be clear, I'm an immigration attorney who didn't start, you know, um, in this area of technology surveillance, but it was because we began to see the shift, a buildup of DHS technologies um, aimed at data extraction, data exploitation, and data manipulation. And I think it offers, um, you know, as Nicole suggested, a very important window as to where uh, digital surveillance and policing is heading. Um, it is now an integral part of the arsenal of enforcement technologies wielded by DHS, um, you know, that's supported by many Silicon Valley companies like Amazon, like Palantir, like Clearview AI, and data broker companies like LexisNexis. Um, and the, the thing that I'm most worried about is that this area is wildly unregulated. Um, and there's really no way to get access uh, to these technologies and what they do to immigrant um, communities because of the way that they are being built and sold and handled by police departments and DHS. Well, they're also being communicated in a certain way. For example, we often celebrate these tools when it leads to prosecuting heinous crimes, Paramita Shah. Yeah, and you know, I I feel like we really have not we, we put a lot of faith into these technologies by highlighting just a few successes. The fact is is that we're really dealing with a wide range of metadata. Um, you know, we have a huge industry where data brokers are two hundred billion dollar industry and the profit incentive here is very high and I don't think it really justifies 
the kinds of powerful te technologies that are being deployed um, against black and brown communities, largely you know, for deportation, for criminalization, for incarceration. Um, and I don't think that we really know a lot about what these technologies do. Um, I mean, why, I guess my question would be is, do we want to expend millions of dollars uh, within our city budgets for social media monitoring? Uh, and for what purpose? You know, is it is it critically important to have that information all the time um, and in a place, in, in a space that is unregulated? And then what happens when we have these tools and it comes to reproductive choice, the dots that we connect there potentially that is causing so much concern uh, right now, especially for abortion rights advocates and also for people who work in the digital privacy space. Well, on the line right now, we have Professor Janet Vertezzi, who I understand wrote an L.A. Times piece titled I Hid My Pregnancy from the Internet. Janet, thanks so much for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about why you wrote this piece and how hard it was for you to hide your pregnancy from the Internet. Sure. So I got pregnant for the first time in 2013. And at the time, um, my husband and I decided to embark on this grand experiment to keep my pregnancy entirely undetected by commercial databases. Um, and we spent a long time, well, at least nine months uh, building this up and trying to evade detection from Facebook, from ad sniffers online, from trackers and bots, and then even doing things like buying things in cash in person. We had a dummy Amazon account that we set up that we only accessed through Tor that was linked to an anonymous email address that we sent things to an Amazon locker, and we stuffed it with cash bought gift cards. I mean, it was this really elaborate ruse. Um, and at the time, the story went viral. This was, you know, like eight years ago or something like that. But what's interesting is that it's, it's had a resurgence of interest because all of a sudden the question around the, the uh, potential withdrawal of Roe versus Wade is the notion that uh, it will be absolutely essential for women to keep pregnancies private. And just how difficult is it to do that? And as you know, one of these people that has actually effectively done it, I can say it's extremely difficult to do. Um, not impossible, but very, very hard, expensive, and not possible for everyone. Yes. What were the range of things you had to think about that could be revealing of a pregnancy? Everything from, you know, the first purchase of prenatal vitamins. I mean, this was not long after that story broke about the, the young woman whose father found out she was pregnant based on her Target purchases. Um, and the Target was sending uh, targeted ads to their house, you know, advertising things about diapers. And then it was revealed that she was actually, her purchasing patterns had revealed algorithmically that she was expecting. So we knew that anything that was bought in store, anything that was linked with a store loyalty card, anything that could be attached to a singular ID, and that could be a store loyalty card. It could be a credit card. It could be a user ID. It could be a, a cookie in a browser that would link you to a single ID. Any of those single identification marks in a database would allow you to bring that information together and realize that I was going to become a parent. Um, and so it was a question of constantly thinking about what are the infrastructures that are tracking and tracing me right now? Uh, in what ways are these purchases or this browsing going to give me away? And also, how do I control my family members who are all really excited to, you know, congratulate me on Facebook and say, you absolutely may not put this on Facebook and not just on the wall, but like not even a message. 
It cannot be in the system at all in the infrastructure recorded that there is a pregnancy or children associated with my name. And that was a lot of planning, uh, a lot of um, cutting people off when they didn't follow the rules, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of expense actually because the store loyalty cards, like you get discounts right if you swipe them at the till because they want your data. They especially want your mommy data. They want to know you're expecting. Because moms are making first-time choices that they're going to stick with for the next several years, pampers or huggies, right? So you want to get those parents as soon as you can, and that's why that data is so valuable. And that's why they'll discount the wares significantly so that you can, uh, so that they'll get your data for it. And so it was things like that. It was not just thinking about what will this look like in a database trace later, but what am I giving away if I choose to take a discount for these prenatal vitamins or for these diapers or for this, you know, formula or whatever it is you're purchasing. Yes. And in your case, you, you said that you and your your partner basically embarked on an experiment in some ways, but but the stakes are, are much higher now uh, as a result of at least 23 states having trigger laws mm-hmm. that would criminalize uh seeking abortion. So this information that would reveal that you're pregnant has much higher stakes. And so Janet Rotesi, before I let you go, just wanted to get your reaction to that. The stakes are higher um, and they're higher for certain populations. And here are the main things that I've taken away from this experiment, which has, by the way, continued for the last nine years. We haven't, there's no information about any of my children or my parentage in any commercial databases. First is you cannot do this if you don't plan in advance because there's so many traces, so many, even just your smartwatch, knowing your basal body temperature change and when you're ovulating before you're even pregnant. There's so many things that can give you away in advance, increasingly nowadays as these trackers have invaded our public spaces and our bodies and our personal lives. So unless you are planning this well in advance, you don't really stand a chance. And of course, the difficulty is that half of all pregnancies in the United States in the last several years have been unplanned. Um, now, that doesn't mean all unplanned pregnancies end in, a, in an abortion, but a significant number of women who find themselves in the situation of being pregnant, with unexpectedly pregnant, won't have the option to go back and undo the past several weeks of behavior um, in terms of tracking and tracing. And additionally, what's made me very worried is that The things that we were able to do, we were able to do because we had certain privileges. We lived in a big city where we could purchase in cash anonymously. If you're in a small town, you can't do it. Um, I could afford to turn down the discounts. It drove me crazy, but it was possible for me to pay more. Some women won't be able to do that. Yes. And then in terms of acting strangely at the till, you know, and and declining the chance to Apple pay or whatever, but insisting on paying in cash, um, these are the kinds of things that certain women and certain minority groups are just not going to have the the same kind of invisibility when they go to the till um, as others. And I think that's that's something that really gives me pause about who's going to be most at risk um, with this. uh, Yeah. Well, Janet Bertese... Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Janet Bertese is author of an L.A. Times piece titled I Hid My Pregnancy from the Internet So I Know Online Privacy is Nearly Impossible. Uh, Professor Bertese is a sociologist of science and technology working on digital privacy issues. And we're talking with you, our listeners, also about digital privacy issues in a post-Row America. Paramita Shah is with us, Executive Director of Just Futures Law, and Nicole Ozer, Technology and Civil Liberties Director at the ACLU of Northern California. 
And uh, Ron writes, can you cite a specific case of someone being unethically prosecuted using online data and anti-abortion laws? And uh, Nicole Ozer, you were referencing some cases earlier. I don't know if there's any specifics you want to share with Ron about the cases you cited or others. I mean, we've already seen several cases, and obviously we're now sort of staring down 23 states, you know, making abortions illegal um, and enforcing and convicting people. Um, so I think that we're, we're looking at a very scary situation. I think that, you know, the story that was just uh, described about sort of trying to keep information private about your pregnancy just really illustrates how our privacy is protected by friction or by law. Um, friction in that it's hard to collect the information or it's burdensome to collect the information. Um, and that friction has really dis really disappeared um, over the last decade as there's been such a proliferation of apps, um, online algorithm and AI powered systems. And that now we see you know, the potential evisceration of Roe and really the importance uh, how important, how the, how the stakes are so high right now to ensure that we pass really strong, robust digital privacy laws. The burden shouldn't be on us as individuals to untangle a massive data ecosystem that is trying to get our information, collecting it, using it, selling it, uh, disclosing it in so many different ways. There's just no way a single individual can go up against that kind of power structure. And that's exactly where consumer protection and privacy laws are supposed to come into play. You, yes. know, you know, that's where we are right now. And, and the stakes are so high to pass, uh, to pass laws in the states, to pass laws federally, and to make sure that any federal law that passes, you know, big tech wants to pass a weak federal law that will preempt erase current state laws and stop us from passing stronger state laws in the future. That's happening right now in Congress, conversations about that. We need to do all we can to make sure that there isn't a weak federal law that preempts our ability here in California and other states uh, to protect digital privacy robustly. And Paramita Shah, Janet was also talking about just how privileged she was and her ability to have the time, the tools, uh, and to learn the strategies and implement the strategies to protect Janet's digital privacy. And just talking about, as we know, how frequently people who seek abortions overlap with people who are poor, low income, you know, people of color who are aware of the privacy risks, but don't have the tools, the time, or the resources to be able to take the necessary steps to protect themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that burden? Yeah, I think it's you know so important to remember that Black and Brown communities have been subject to privacy-piercing um, practices by law enforcement and immigration agencies for decades. Um, you know, from for many, many, many years, um, you know, everything that goes to um, where who you know, where you visited, uh, receipts from what you bought uh, for, you know, certain technologies, there's a history of police and uh, immigration, immigration agencies, uh, frankly, in wanting to get around privacy protections. And so, um, I think it calls into question for me, 
you know, what really are we saying when we say privacy? Um, are we talking about data protection? Um, you know, there are just so many um, companies out there, social media companies, data brokers, data miners. And, you know, at this point in our, in my work, you know, as someone who's an immigrant rights activist, um, it is very clear that uh, we have been hacked and tracked uh, for many, many years. Um, and when these actors, frankly, operate with impunity and virtually no safeguards where um, third, these companies that share and sell uh, data um, are incentivized to make money um, because it's part of their business model to sell that data. Um, you know, I am, I'm really concerned and worried about some of the exceptions uh, that will emerge, you know, when we talk about uh, privacy laws that need to be very strong to protect black and brown communities. Um, this is not to say that we don't, I believe in privacy and I think it's really important, but we must recognize uh, how privacy has not really been respected for people who are policed and, and incarcerated. Um, you know, that is the purpose of policing and surveillance. Um, and so what I worry about are things like um, the companies that might be building these platforms um, and frankly, their relationship with law enforcement. What does it mean now in my mind? These are just questions I have since I'm not a repro activist is that, you know, what, what does it mean now to have somebody's uh, credit card receipts available online? What does it mean now to have an app look that tracks your location data? Uh, what does it mean for when these laws, these trigger laws come online, what will it mean uh, for immigrants, for poor people of color, as you said, and the impact on their daily life and potentially um, their access to immigrant services? Well, we will dig deeper into the situation in California, what things are like here in terms of data privacy protection more after the break. But you can join the conversation by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or calling us 866-733-6786. All your questions about data and privacy, especially post-Roe, or if you want to share any actions you're taking to protect your personal data. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the implications of a post-Roe America for personal data, community surveillance, and we'll dig into the constitutional right to privacy itself. We're joined by Paramita Shah, the Executive Director of Just Futures Law, and Nicole Ozer, Technology and Civil Liberties Director of the ACLU of Northern California. You, our listeners, are joining us, posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, emailing us forum at kqed.org, or calling us 866-733-6786. Peter in San Francisco. Hi, Peter. Yes, hi. It's Peter Warfield. I'm head of Library Users Association. We've worked with ACLU and Electronic Frontier Foundation to keep RFID tags out of library books. Uh, one of the important things I think is uh, that I don't think I've heard yet is that anybody who's using, including government agencies who use Zoom, for example, to have authored talks or other programs or meetings, uh, folks who use WebEx, uh, Microsoft Teams, all of the government agencies in particular are basically helping to collect information for those agencies to use to make more money and more profit and to basically enhance <clears throat> excuse me enhance their surveillance and i think that's very significant uh and needs also to be looked at peter thanks and uh, nicole we did focus a lot on law enforcement but also as you have pointed out in terms of government surveillance as well for anywhere from the local to the state level or national even absolutely um you know <laughs> In the past two years, certainly our lives have become even more digital. We're communicating, we're connecting, we're learning, we're trying to access essential healthcare and other services. This is all happening digitally. And so sort of our lives becoming more digital and the stakes of what's sort of happening nationally and politically are colliding at this moment, which makes it sort of all the more critical that we finally do make sure that, you know, digital privacy laws are updated and actually um, keep up with the pace of where technology now is. And, and that that hasn't been happening. And, and it hasn't been happening, not because we don't know the threats, but because the big technology companies have used so many resources to try to stymie any attempts to pass strong digital privacy laws on the state level. And now they're trying to pass weak federal laws that would actually um, stop us from being able to continue to pass laws in the future. So, you know, this is a time when we really need to be serious about what the implications are um, and serious and have serious discussions with our local state and federal lawmakers about what robust change we need to be seeing um, to protect our families and our futures. Well, Paul writes, are cell phone locations still tracked, recorded, even when the phone is powered off? If not, this is one simple step we can take to avoid at least a little bit of surveillance. And another listener asks, is there any way to be fully offline? So what do you think, Nicole? You know, you know, um, survivors of domestic violence have understood these risks for a very long time. We have worked with, uh, you know, the California Network to End Domestic Violence, and that is one of the things they immediately say turn off the cell phone, you know, make sure you turn off all the location services, do surveillance self-defense. There are definitely steps that we can take to reduce our risk. Um, going into our settings and turning off location information and search history, using services with more privacy protections like DuckDuckGo as a search engine instead of Google, 
um, compartmentalizing our online activity. You know, if you're using a single company like Google for your email, your search history, your photos, your cloud computing documents, your maps of where you've gone, that's a one-stop shop for finding out everything about you. So, you know, spread it around and, you know, think critically about what services and apps you're using and the risks versus what benefit you're actually receiving. Um, you know, I think that we, you know, there are some, you know, using anonymous systems like Tor, using signal with disappearing messages. These are all steps we can take to try to reduce our risk. But as I said, you know, the burden shouldn't also be on us for this incredibly um, lucrative ecosystem that is trying to always collect our information. And there needs to be strong law um, to make sure that this information just can't be collected, can't be used, can't be shared. Um, and, and that's important steps that we've, we've passed important laws in California. We've passed important laws in other states. We need to be able to continue to do that. Well, Nicole, can you talk about what currently exists right now in California in terms of online privacy protections that you think are worth noting and for people to understand their rights? Yeah, I think I think one thing to really make clear as sort of this conversation about, you know, Roe is happening, that we have incredibly strong law in California, and we will use our position to try to protect people here and beyond. You know, in California, uh, we have a state constitutional right to privacy. It is an inalienable right to privacy in our California state constitution in Article 1, Section 1. Um, it creates an inalienable right to privacy for all Californians. It was passed in 1972. We're actually having the 50th anniversary of it this November. And it, it is a right it is the right to be left alone. It protects our bodily autonomy and our informational privacy. Um, it's, it protects our homes, our families, our thoughts, our emotions. And it was particularly built to sort of a modern right to privacy to prevent exactly kind of what we're seeing here in terms of government and business interests collecting and stockpiling personal information and and information gathered for one purpose really being used for other purposes and to come back to harm us. So one thing is that in California, we have this constitutional right to privacy, which really protects us um, and is separate from anything that sort of happens on the federal level. And we have used this constitutional foundation to also pass some of the strongest digital privacy and reproductive rights laws in the country um, to operationalize these constitutional rights. So mm -hmm. we have a very strong uh, legal foundation here in California to maintain and hopefully expand protections um, for Californians and be able to hopefully protect other people who are coming and seeking um, seeking services within our state. Yes. Can you talk quickly about California's AB 1356, which was signed into law by Newsom last year with regard to protections around reproductive health care? Um, yeah, you know, we have passed a lot of laws in California to be able to support reproductive health care. And we actually have a new law, a new bill that's actually currently moving through um, AB 2091 by Mia Bonta, um, which would seek to stop information about people seeking abortions in California from being able to flow across state lines and be used by prosecutors. So we've got, you know, laws that 
have been passed in California that protect um, the protect information, uh, reproductive rights information, um, CalECPA, which the California Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which we helped to pass in 2015, which um, which requires a warrant for any government entity to seek any electronic information from a provider. And we're looking at how we can really strengthen existing medical information laws, specific reproductive rights laws, and digital privacy laws um, to be able to create even stronger safeguards for people here in California and people seeking support and services within the state as well. Let me go to Nadine in San Anselmo. Hi, Nadine. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can, go Hello. right ahead. Yeah. Um, I have a flip phone, and I was under the impression that I'm less trackable with a flip phone. Um, I don't use it for email. I don't know if it has a capacity for email. I can take pictures, and I can send, like I can text and so forth. So is that kind of a flip phone still able to be tracked as much as if I were to convert to what everybody else uses in the world? Mm-hmm. Parameters are less trackable with a flip phone? Yeah, that's my question. Thanks. Paramita Shah, what do you think? You know, it's hard for me to know uh, what kind of tech is on the flip phone. You know, I know that there's like a resurgence of interest in low tech uh, versus high tech. Um, So I I might have to punt that to Nicole, who may know better, but location tracking technology is, is pretty powerful and it's not really just about your phone it's about really what else you're you're on right because it's not about uh the location technology but i would just probably put out there is um it's also about like aggregating various points of information yeah well about- i would add Lisa. I would add to that question as well. This other listener's tweet, good luck with waiting for government protection. We should all use VPNs just like people in totalitarian countries. So, Nicole, in terms of Nadine's question about, you know, would a flip phone help and how realistic is it all? Is it for all of us to use VPNs? So a flip phone you know, doesn't have access to the apps that many people add onto their smartphone that have location services. The flip phone is still being tracked by the cell phone carrier in terms of who you are and where we, where you go. When you make that call, it's transmitting to the cell tower to know where you are. But it means that you're not also using additional apps like, um, you know, Google Maps or Lyft or Uber or something else that might have location services turned on. So the less, the fewer apps you use, the less technology you use, the less um, tracking is happening. But yes, your self, your flip phone or your smartphone is still acting as a surveillance device in terms of how it operates in order to actually work and make a phone call. In terms of VPNs, absolutely, you know, using an anonymy, an anonymous services like Tor for searching and browsing, um, going into your systems and making sure that you've set whatever privacy settings you can do, um, you know, there are things that everyone can benefit from surveillance self-defense and Um, being really critical about what technology they're using, what privacy settings they're using, um, and really really minimizing the types of information that they're sharing and how. We're talking with Nicole Ozer, Technology and Civil Liberties Director at the ACLU of Northern California, and Paramita Shah, Executive Director of Just Futures Law, a women of color-led organization that provides legal support for people facing deportation and mass criminalization. 
And you can join the conversation by emailing your questions to forum at kqed.org, posting them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Paramita Shah, can you just talk a little bit more about you work in this space for people who are facing deportation, for example, the intersection you see in immigrant communities with Roe and the rights enshrined in Roe potentially going away, what that effect will be? I mean, I, th- I think it's going to be what, what it could lead to. And I think, you know, this is not to instill fear. Abortion is still legal, right? And uh, there will be uh, organized communities that will ensure that abortion um, is abortion services are provided. And I believe um, in the strength and power of organized communities uh, fighting for data protective policies, as much as I believe in stronger laws. Um, but if I was going to be concerned, it is around what are you know the, the, the close connection between the criminal legal system and the immigration system is this, is that any kind of criminal contact or criminal history can lead to an impact on your immigration status. And it doesn't depend, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're undocumented or whether you're a legal permanent resident. Um, you know, there can be an impact on that person's situation, potentially on their status. And, and what I'm concerned about, I think down the road, and this will take a lot of research and, and time as we look at these laws that could come into play down the road is whether they may trigger removal, whether they may stop someone from naturalizing, whether they may stop someone from getting a green card. Like I said before, those things are not happening right now because abortion is legal, um, but it could happen, you know, and, and we will need to do that investigation to learn further what it means. But in the meantime, I would say that um, it's, you know, what the message we are sending to immigrant communities is that they need to understand and fight against the growth of these surveillance technologies and the companies that are building them. And that is what our research has largely been focused on is, are those things, is ensuring that um, that data, though that type of surveillance, which has been largely hidden from people so impacted by it, um, is out in the open and in the public discourse so that we can, frankly, take control of our own data. Well, let me go to Sean in San Jose. Hi, Sean. Hello. Um, during the fires, I started working with uh, um, at-risk, uh, let's just say at-risk community. And um, when when um, the people you help, the people you work with are um, supposed to gather at a location that's that's meant to remain private to, uh, for their protection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important that uh, the volunteers, the people that you trust, that they also take these measures to prevent apps from communicating with one another and in the privacy and, uh, you know, um, uh, even texting because, you know, um, uh, in text encryption became uh, really important for a lot of uh, advocates during um uh, during the standoff at Standing Rock, um, and something uh, this protecting at-risk communities. 
uh, from from tracking. Uh, people don't think about it, but that's another reason why public tra- uh, public transportation is is important because you can pay cash, right? Um, it's it's fairly anonymous rather than using apps. Well, Sean, I think you're raising some interesting points in terms of, well, I guess situations where you can be more anonymous, but also, Nicole Ozer, just in terms of not just people in the case of post-row seeking abortion services or health care, but the people who would want to help or assist them either inadvertently sharing information or maybe even criminalizing themselves, which has been raised a lot, especially in the wake of the Texas law. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, both activists and organizations that are involved in these issues, taking a very careful look at their own information practices, what types of information they're collecting, what types of, um, you know, services, whether it be text messaging or Zoom or other things that they're using. These were trainings that we absolutely did with partners, you know, following the Trump election and, you know, the the threats for immigrant communities that we've continued to do and that we have been um, starting to utilize again right now. Um, So, you know, thinking about, you know, are you having people sign up uh, when they're gonna come to a training or to an event? Like whatever information you collect, however you collect it potentially can be vulnerable and be demanded and be used against the people that you're actually trying to help. And so it's it's individuals and it's also organizations who wanna be helping and making sure that they're not harming. But as you've said multiple times, Nicole Ozer, this isn't something that the responsibility can't be placed entirely on the individual. So your last piece of advice for any, you've cited several efforts that are underway. I don't know if there are any at the federal or at the state level you want to highlight just in our last 20 seconds here that we haven't yet touched upon. Well, you know, please make sure to contact your California legislator and encourage them to vote yes on SB 1038. It's our law to make sure that police body cameras can't be used with face recognition and other biometric surveillance to identify people. Please contact the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Tell them not to expand surveillance. This is not the time to be expanding surveillance. This is the time to be buttressing privacy protections and protecting our communities. Nicole Ozer is Technology and Civil Liberties Director of the ACLU. And Paramita Shah is Executive Director of Just Futures Law. Thanks to our listeners for sharing their thoughts and experiences. And also, thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.